0: Well thanks Carlos for that we're looking forward to how God's going to work in this next uh, round of care groups and I just encourage you if you're not part of a care group to do that to sign up um, and, and become part of one <clears throat> again want to just think, uh, say thank you to those of you who are visiting with us we have uh, some a couple very dear to our family who's visiting with us uh, this morning Chuck and Gail Nelson. thank you guys for for being here um, And just, again, for the rest of you who are visiting with us for the first time, want to welcome you. Our pastor, Milton Vincent, is out of town, enjoying some much-needed rest and vacation time with his family in his home state and with his relatives. So uh, he called me last night and said to say hello to you, and said he'd be praying for our time together this morning. If you would, would you turn to Psalm 128? Psalm 128. I was one of the weird guys in seminary. That like Hebrew more than Greek. So anytime I can get a chance to preach in the Old Testament, I'll take it. So we're going to the Old Testament. We're going to Psalm 128 this morning. And as you turn there, I'm going to pray for our time together. Father, we, we just give you praise and honor for who you are, Lord. As we've sung today, you are, you are holy and majestic and awesome. And we praise you, Lord. Um, Father, we just come humbly before you today. And it's our desire to continue to worship you as we behold your word, as we study it, Lord, and as we seek to apply it to our lives. I pray that this psalm would have a transforming effect on everyone here, especially the men to whom it's written, the men of Cornerstone, Lord, that they would that they would embrace this psalm and that out of this psalm, Lord, that we would all walk away with a greater fear in all of you. That's our prayer this morning, Lord. And I pray that you'd be with me as we walk through the text, that I would, you would just guide me and guide our time together. In Jesus' name, amen. I wanted to begin this morning by uh, reading a quote from Milton. The title of our message for this morning is The Importance of Men Who Fear the Lord. The Importance of Men Who Fear the Lord. Milton recently wrote something and he, he was addressing it He wanted it addressed to you men. And this is what he said. He said, we need you men. Your ministry is the most important ministry here at Cornerstone. Imagine the elders as the first tier of ministry and then the second tier as all our men who stand before their households providing leadership for their wives and their children. You men are the most important investment that we can make at this time in our church's history. Speaking of you men, he goes on to say, I want these men to know that in some ways they are more important than the elders in the sense that they have more power to do good in the lives of their children. And I would add wives than the elders do. One pound of godly father and husband is better than a ton of godly clergy. There is no mightier weapon in the hand of God than a father and a husband who is on fire for God. And willing to lead his wife and his children. We're at at an interesting time in our church's history because it's not as if we never knew this or realized it. But I think God is really moving on the leadership of this church to, to really realize the fact that it is us as men who have an amazing, privileged, honored, and important role to play. Not only in our homes, but in God's household. Which is the church. And it's no coincidence that we're coming to Psalm one twenty eight because it's this this is the message of the psalmist this morning. You see, man, you, you play a very important role in what God is doing on this earth. And and realize this as we as we look at Psalm one twenty eight this morning that I'm that that even though I'm addressing the man, you're seeing something of the heart of God. As women and children, I want those of you um, women and children to to realize how much God loves and values you, that he has put this psalm in Scripture and before our men even this morning. See, some might say, "Wow, you're you're saying that men are more important, but it's the very opposite. We're saying no men are, are significant and so significant in their role in this community. And it's because we love our women and our children so much. And this church that we're we're feeling more and more of a burden to reach out to men, to minister to them, to exhort them, to encourage them, to empower them to be all that God wants them to be. It's because we love the rest of the church that we're doing that. And the psalmist would say he is doing the same thing. The psalm that we're going to look at this morning is what I title a man psalm. For you guys who are into man things, this is a man psalm. Okay? And, and to prove it, I've highlighted the yellow parts that really show that the psalmist was writing to men, the men of Israel. Read it with me. The psalmist writes, How truly happy is everyone, could be translated, every man who fears Yahweh, who continually walks in his ways. The produce of your hand, indeed you shall eat. You will be truly happy and it will be well with you. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots surrounding your table. Behold, indeed, in this way will the man be blessed who fears the Lord. May Yahweh bless you from Zion in order that you might see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life, and in order that you might see your children's children, may peace be upon Israel. Why was the psalmist addressing men? He knew, he knew as well, just the role, the impact that men have. He knew that the ones that he was addressing were the leaders of Israel. Israel. They're the ones that would influence their homes, their communities. They were the ones that were to serve as the spiritual examples to the nation. And they were the ones that were to teach and to motivate all of Israel to fear God and walk in his ways. This morning, I want to put kind of a little mantra before you. And we're going to to hear it again later in the message. And it it just just makes you realize the impact that men have. And it goes like this. As go the men, so goes the men family and as goes the as go the families so goes the community and as goes the community of today so goes the community of tomorrow it's fascinating to 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 just dive into the context when we see who this this psalm was written to but also where it occurs in in the Psalter because this is a psalm of ascent a song of ascent. It's part of that, that canon of Psalms, Psalms 120 through 134. Fifteen Psalms that were sung as pilgrims made their way to Jerusalem. And, and as you went to Jerusalem, pretty much from any other direction, you ascended to it. You came up towards it. And the scriptures tell us, Exodus 23:17 tells us, that the men were required by God to go and present themselves before him, to come and to, and to hold the feasts and to worship and to offer sacrifices and worship and praise and honor him three times a year. Exodus twenty three seventeen says, Three times in the year you shall, all your males, appear before the Lord God. And, and these three times were Passover, or the Feast of Unleavened Bread in spring, it was the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost, Shavuot, which is celebrated in early summer. And then the Feast of Ingathering or Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles, Sukkot, which is celebrated in fall. And, and what would happen is these men would, would leave their villages. Sometimes they couldn't bring their families with them, so they would go. Some could. We have a record of that in First Samuel. Elkanah, the husband of Hannah and his other wife, they went together. And, and, and sacrificed the Lord and worshipped Him. But there was times where you just couldn't take your whole family. And so what you would do is you and the other men of the village, you would go and walk step, you would, you would trail and you would ascend up to Jerusalem. And what were you doing as you were doing that? You were singing and reciting these psalms, these songs of ascent. Psalm 128 is, is a gift. Before there was promise keepers, before there was the Million Man March, before there were men's retreats, This was God's way of reminding the men of the role that they played in their homes and in their communities. And the psalmist is giving the most influential people in the community the most important message that he could. He's putting before them the most important activity, the most important focus, the most important principle that they're to hold on to. And that is to be men who fear the Lord. You know, it's... The fear of the Lord, that concept, that theological reality, sometimes it's, it's, it's hard to understand. I confess that after a couple of weeks of just diving back into this passage and studying it again, I, 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 I'm just drowning in what is the fear of the Lord. But I'll tell you this, if we don't get our understanding of what the fear of the Lord is right, we, we risk jeopardizing the rest of our spiritual life. We need a right understanding of what the fear of the Lord is. The psalmist doesn't give us that. In fact, what he's going to do is he's going to walk us through blessings that come to the men and their communities, their homes, and, every, and everything else as a result of them fearing God. But he already assumes that we know what the fear of the Lord is. But I want to just take a few minutes to just, to just walk through what the fear of the Lord is. And, and for many of us, the fear of the Lord may be something negative, something that, that produces uh, bad feelings in us. Wayne Mack addresses that when he says some people have a fear of God that is heavy, even oppressive to them. The thought of God brings anxiety, dread or terror. Their fear of God is debilitating a curse rather than a blessing. They think that God is out to get them, that he is petulant, vindictive and hard to get along with. Continuing on, he says the wrong kind of fear, quote, will cause you to be insecure, discontented, unforgiving, unloving, authoritarian or spineless. But Psalm 128, fear, the true fear of the Lord, produces the opposite effects. It's constructive, not destructive. It will draw you towards God, not drive you away from him. It will stimulate you, uh, stimulate responsible action, not breed idleness. It will cause you to reach out, not to pull in. It will help you to serve others and diminish selfishness. And it will demolish other fears which inhibit confident, joyful, and fruitful living. What Wayne Mag is saying is that the fear of the Lord is a good thing. Something that we want, that we ought to desire, that should bring joy as we, as we walk in it. So what is the fear of the Lord? I want to give us a definition this morning that I think begins to capture uh, a, a, a good part of it, of what it is. And here's the definition. The fear of the Lord is this. It's an ever-increasing and consuming awe and awareness of God. It's an ever-increasing and consuming awe and awareness of God. This, this word awe and, and the resulting words awesome have fallen on hard times. It's, it's sad that we use these words flippantly. We'll talk about, you know, wasn't that, wasn't that game last night awesome? Or isn't my new phone awesome? Or, you know, man, this ice cream cone is so awesome. As we think about the word, even if you look it up in a dictionary, you begin to see that there are very few things that are awesome. In fact, just the dictionary, if, if, you, if you looked up the word, you would get this definition a feeling of reverential respect mixed with fear and wonder. It's a reverence as you look at something and it causes you trembling and fear and at the same time amazement and wonder. You see, true reverential awe comes as we gaze at the fullness of who God is and what he's done for us. Jerry Bridges, in his book, The Joy of Fearing God, he says this as he tries to help us understand this idea or concept of awe. He says, imagine yourself driving across one of our central states on a sultry, overcast day. Suddenly, you catch the sight of a violent tornado spinning across the plains towards you, lifting houses and barns in the air and leaving wholesale destruction in its path. Immediately, you feel a gripping sense of awe that includes not only fear for your own safety, but also amazement at the storm's overwhelming power. Obviously, you're experiencing awe in a very real sense, but it is not reverential awe. Finally, the tornado passes beyond, leaving you safe. You begin to think of the hand of God behind the tornado. You reflect on the fact that the roaring twister was a visible manifestation of his mighty power. Now your awe is focused not on the tornado, but on God. It has become reverential awe, a mixture of fear and veneration and wonder and admiration, all directed towards God himself. Sinclair Ferguson has a similar definition of awe. He he describes it as that indefinable mixture of reverence, of fear and of pleasure, joy and awe, which fills our hearts when we realize who God is and what he's done. You see, if we're going to begin to fear the Lord, we need to gaze at the Lord, and we need to come face to face with who He is. We need to see Him as the one that Scripture says can measure the universe with the span of His hands, the one who upholds the entire world by the word of His power, the word of His mouth. This is the God who made all things, who can crush and destroy people. And any, 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 anyone who stands in His way, who in His holiness and His justice will one day destroy all who don't bow before Him in submission. The one who Jesus says, fear Him because He's the one who can cast both body and soul into hell. And it's not only as we look at God's sovereignty and His majesty and His power and His holiness and His justice that we begin to, 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 to fear Him, to, to be in awe of Him. But as we see what he's done, that this is the same God who came to earth. This is the same God who chose to become a man and die on the cross to become, become sin for us. This is the same God who showed us love and mercy and grace, even though we never, ever deserved it. Even while we were yet his enemies, this is the God who died for us. The song, the, the God that we sang about just a few minutes ago and, and as, you, as you begin to be in awe of God, it, that's where the fear of the Lord begins. That's where the fear of the Lord begins. Where you realize, like those who stood before the Lord, like Isaiah and John, this is the one who I, I, I ought to fear. He is, he is very different from me. I am not him. And he is set apart. It's amazing to think about John in Revelation. Here's the one, the disciple whom Jesus loved, who for three, three years had walked with Jesus, who had laid on his, on his chest in the upper room, and he sees him in all of his glory and majesty and splendor in, in, in the book of Revelation, in that vision, and he falls like a dead man under the full weight of, of awe of him, realizing this, this Jesus is very different. Very holy. Very unique. Very majestic. This is the God who is awesome. And that's what we ought to think about when we think of that word awe. And, and that's how we ought to use the word when we talk about something being awesome. That it bring about that reverence in both fear and wonder. There's several passages that kind of talk about this. That, that get at this, this this idea of awe. Jeremiah Ten six 6 through 7 says, There is none like you, O Lord. You are great and your name is great in might. Who would not fear you, O King of the nations? For this is your due. For among all the wise ones of the nations and in all their kingdoms, there is none like you. Psalm 33, 8 says, Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. 1 Samuel 12, 24 says, Only fear the Lord and serve Him faithfully with all of your heart, for consider what great things He has done for you. You see, as we, not only as we, we behold His majesty, His, His otherness, His, His set-apartness, His holiness, but even the things that He's done for us, those, as we think about those things, that ought to cause us to fall on our face in wonder and in awe and in reverence and in worship of Him. Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, he understood the place of the fear of the Lord and, and what, what, what role it ought to play in our lives. At the conclusion of his book, at, towards the end of his life, when he wrote Ecclesiastes, this is what he concluded. He says, the conclusion, when all has been heard, fear God and keep his commandments. Number one thing that you ought to do, when it, out of all the things I've learned in life, as the wisest man, Solomon would tell us, it's this, fear God. Fear God. How do we do that? Well, I, again, the psalmist doesn't tell us. He's going to walk us through some blessings that come from fearing him. But I want to just give you some, some suggestions, some, some thoughts about how to begin to cultivate a fear of the Lord. First of all, we pray. We pray. Jeremiah 32 is a new covenant passage. It says, I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will put the fear of me into their hearts that they may not turn away from me. Remember our definition. It's an ever-increasing and consuming awe and awareness of God. And what we need to pray when we come before God seeking to be people who fear him and saying, Lord, I know that from this passage, you have already as a believer and as as a recipient of the new covenant blessings, you have already put the fear you, the fear of you in my heart, but just like everything else, our understanding of the gospel, our fear of the Lord—those things, when we become a believer, they're very small. And God's desire is that we would cultivate that fear of the Lord, that we would ignite it, that we would grow it, and that we would that we would fuel it. And so we we pray, God, we pray with the psalmist, Psalm eighty-six, eleven: Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Here it is: Unite my heart to fear your name. You see, the psalmist, is, he's saying, look, he, it is compartmentalized. That gets turned on two days out of the week and then you turn it off the rest of the time. It's got to be consuming you at all times. And the psalmist says, there's only one way that that can happen. It's that your heart be single-minded and, and focused in on one purpose. And that is to fear the Lord. A man who's distracted by other desires and other things will never fear him. It's a man who's united in his heart. His heart is united to fear God. And that's what we ought to pray. Another thing we ought to do is we ought to rehearse the gospel. It's in the gospel that we see who God is and what he's done. And, and it, it's nowhere else put on more beautiful display than in the person work of Jesus, God the Son, who died for us, who, who took on sin for us, who came into this world holy, perfect, righteous, and as we, we meditate on the gospel, as we look at the gospel, we'll begin to stand in awe of God. The third way is to re- read and rehearse and meditate on scripture. When we come to the scriptures, we need to read, ask ourselves, Lord, what does this teach me about you? How can this grow my awe of you, my wonder of, of you and amazement of you, but my fear and reverence and respect for you? And lastly, we want to surround ourselves with God. Again, it's got to be consuming. It's got to be everywhere you go, whether you're in the car, you're at work, you're at home, you're in bed, you're alone, you're with people. You must surround yourself with great thoughts of God. Wayne Mack describes the fear of the Lord as having a big concept of God. A God consciousness, and how do we do that? We do that just practically in, in several ways, even who we spend time with has the the best thing that we could do for one another and when we're together is point each other to the glory of God. That's the best thing I could do with with my time with you is to point you to the Lord and to 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 put him on display so that you stand in awe of him and and that you would do that for me. It also is practical in what we look at, what we listen to, what we think reading other good books, listening to music that like we did this morning. That music was awesome this morning. Just putting God on display. Allowing us to just be reminded of how awesome He is. You know, if you, if you don't have something to read this summer, let me recommend Jerry Bridges' book, The Joy of Fearing God. This is one of the best books I've read in a while. Um, excellent book. Excellent book. It's It's by reading and meditating and just gorging yourself on those kind of things that that you you begin to, ha- to grow in your awe of God. and He becomes more awesome to you. And that's the question we need to ask ourselves this morning. How awesome is God in your mind? Because if you have a very small God, and you have a very small fear of the Lord, and, and you're going to be a very weak person, but if, you have, if God is awesome to you, if he, is, if he is daunting and glorious in your mind, in your heart, Man, that has powerful and transforming power. And that's, that's the last thing that I want to mention before we go on, is, is just what the fear of the Lord is in our lives. What role it plays. It's like a fountain, guys. It's like a fountain out of which everything else flows. It's like that first domino. You knock that one over and everything else will follow after it. The fear of the Lord, the scriptures say, is what produces all things. It's the beginning place of everything, of knowledge, of wisdom, of living a life that... that that is devoted to the Lord. From a fear of the Lord comes a love for Him and worship for Him and a trust and faith in Him and obedience to Him and ultimately a life that is characterized by serving Him and walking in His ways. In fact, look at the psalm with me. He says, How truly happy is everyone who fears the Lord who continually walks in His ways. It's not two things that the psalmist is going to talk about this morning. Walking or or fearing the Lord and walking in His ways. No, he's saying... If you fear the Lord, you're going to walk in His ways. It's out of a fear of the Lord co- that comes a life that is transformed. It will touch everything and it will change you. And so with that, we're going to dive into the psalm and we're going to look at four places in which men who fear the Lord will experience blessing. Again, men, this psalm is written to you. This, The Lord is, is saying, if I if I can just get to you, I can have an impact on everybody else. And you, you play a, a significant role in your homes and in your community. And so we're gonna, the psalmist is going to walk us through four places in which, a men, in, in which men who fear the Lord will experience blessing. And the first place is in their personal life, in their personal life. And he does this in verse 2 by describing both external blessing and internal blessing. Look at verse 2 with me. He says, The produce of your hand, indeed, you shall eat. You will be truly happy and it will be well with you. He begins. The psalmist begins with the idea or the concept of external blessing when he says, The produce of your hands or the fruit of your labor, indeed, you will eat. See, he, with this line, the, the psalmist begins to, to use agricultural t- uh, symbolism and pictures and terminology to paint a beautiful, beautiful image of, of what life was like in Israel and what they would have understood um, from, from these descriptions. He says, the produce, the, 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 the toil, the labor, the work of your hands, indeed you shall eat. You see, for the Israelite who lived under the covenant, this would have made perfect sense because there's only two ways to live. If you, either you were in covenant obedience to God or you were in disobedience. And the covenant reminded you that what you sow is what you're going to reap. And, and if you reaped, if you, if you feared the Lord and walked in His ways, you would get blessing. But if you didn't, you would face the judgment of God. The passages like Deuteronomy 28, and Leviticus 26, they, they explain all of the details of what would happen to you, whichever way you went. So the man that says, that, that, that hears this and, and hears the produce of your hands, eat you shall, he would have understood what this meant. First of all, it would have meant peace, that God is granting peace. For you to eat your cross means the enemy hasn't come in according to the covenant. He hasn't destroyed you yet, that you're still alive, and that you get to partake of that which you've worked over. But not only is it peace, it's this idea of provision. God is saying, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to prosper you. I'm going to ensure that you're productive and successful in all that your hand touches, and you're going to reap the blessing of that. Now, here's the problem for us as men is that so often, many of us men, we find our joy. Our identity, our purpose in life, all of the, all of these things, and we're looking to what we do for a living and who we are by vocation, as the source of that blessing. We're wanting those things to bless us. And God is saying, no, 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 no. You, you need to just be a man who stands in awe of me, and, and, and I will bless you in those things. Don't look to those things for the blessing. Look to me, be one who fears me, stands in awe of me. It has a big view of me, it's consumed with me, and I will bless you. I will bless you. You know, one of the hardest things that I've ever done, the hardest thing I've ever done in my life was to quit my airline job. That was, the, that was the most difficult decision I have ever made in my life. And it was because I realized at that point how much of my well-being, how much of my security, how much of my hope, how much of my happiness, how much of my identity was, was I had, how much of that I had placed on what I did for a living And I was looking to that to give me the blessing that I want. God is saying, no, just be a man who fears me and I will will bless you. I will be the one who provides for you and protects you and and gives you success. There's a second aspect to this personal blessing, that's internal blessing. Look at the end of verse 2. He says, you will be truly happy and it will be well with you. It's kind of an unfortunate translation. Some, some, most of the Bible say, "You will be blessed," but that's not the word for the Hebrew word for blessed, Baruch. The, the word that's found here is Ashrei, which means happy. It, it, it speaks of, of this state that, that the man will find himself in. It, it's a state of inner fullness, of satisfaction, of contentment. God is saying, "Look, you decide to fear me, and, and you, you, you." Just, just set your, your focus and your attention on, on loving me, on, on being in awe of me and being consumed with me and, and I'm going to fill you up with this true happiness that nothing else in this world could give you. No drug, no alcohol, no sexual encounter, no, no achievement at work, no, nothing that money could buy will ever give you this kind of internal blessing that God is describing here. He's saying, the man who fears me will truly experience ashray. He will be truly happy and filled up. Not only that, but he says, and it will be well with you. The Hebrew word tov, which means good or well-being. It may include material blessing, but it primarily is focused on spiritual blessing and well-being. You see, if things were going well with you, th- that meant that, that, that God was blessing. And, and, and what, that, what that should conjure up in our minds, that spiritual blessing, is as you fear the Lord, remember, it's the fountain. It's the fountain out of which everything else is going to come. You're going to find yourself loving Him and serving Him and obeying Him. You're going to be transformed as you fear the Lord, if you truly fear Him. And so it, it's, the, the fear of the Lord is going to, it's going to change you for the good, so that you experience all of that goodness that comes from a transformed life. Listen to Psalm thirty-one, nineteen. It says, Oh, how abundant is your goodness which you have stored up for those who fear you. It's as if God has a storehouse, a treasure of blessing, of spiritual blessing, and even material blessing, and he's ready to lavish it on you, on, on those of us who fear him. Proverbs fourteen twenty seven says, "The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life, that one may turn away from the snares of death." You see, there's a protective aspect to the fear of the Lord. It keeps you away from all that is dangerous, all that is deadly, all that is wicked, all that is sinful, and it, and it allows you to come over and experience life and safety and blessing and goodness. You know, just this week, as I, you know, this week I'm going to confess to you, I just God showed me how tiny my view of him was. That he was awesome in my mind, but with a very small A. But as I began this week and and, a little bit of last week to to meditate on the fear of the Lord, and I just made it my goal every day to just be consumed with an awe and awareness of him, I I can honestly tell you that this, this week I have just experienced so much victory over temptation and a feeling of purity and it, that has come from just that focus on him and cultivating that awe and awareness of him. You see, when you you fear the Lord, you know that he's with you and he's there and he's watching you. It's 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 who we are in private that really reveals how much of the fear of the Lord we really have. But but he's saying here to to men, and this applies to all of us, that those who fear him will experience a spiritual blessing that comes from fearing Him. Well, there's another second place where we, where men who fear the Lord will experience blessing and that's in the home. That's in the home. Not only will they experience personal blessing, both external and internal, feeling that sense of ashray, of, of, of well-being and blessing and contentment and fullness, but they're going to see blessing occurring in their home. And here's what, what he means. First, he begins with Well, what he's really getting to is the household. And he begins with the wife and then he moves on to the children. Look at verse 3 with me. The psalmist says, Your wife will be like a vine bearing fruit within your home. Your children will be as olive shoots surrounding your table. You see, the the Israelites knew a lot about vineyards and vines and... and, and, um, the word for vine is, is a climbing plant, and in, in this context, it's, he's talking about a grapevine. And it's, it's interesting to understand this, the, again the, the, the authors, the, the, the psalmist is going to develop these, these beautiful agricultural pictures that have very deep meaning. But we just need to appreciate some of what was going on um, in, 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 this, in this background. A vine, vineyards, and, and vines were cultivated from from ancient times. And Palestine was a, a really great place to grow wines and, and, and grapes, uh, vint vines. Uh, it was very much like Southern California where there lots of good sun and the temperature's right. Um, and when Israel came into the land of Canaan, they inherited uh, a, a, a full-running viticulture industry. The Canaanites had planted vineyards before. In fact, in Deuteronomy, God says you're coming in to homes that you did not build and vineyards that you did not plant. And that was a gift from God. And from these vineyards... They enjoyed grapes, they enjoyed raisins, they enjoyed wine. And this, this stuff that, was that, that in English we, we translate honey in the Hebrew is debash. And it's this, this kind of sugar, jelly, sugary jelly or honey. And it's fascinating. Most commentators say that most of our occurrences of honey in the Old Testament refer to grape honey or this jelly, not, not the honey of bees. Um, so the, the, the Israelite would have understood just the, this beautiful picture of the vine and he would have understood what God was trying to communicate here through uh, alluding to the wife as a vine. That, the, that our wives, men, are precious and valuable gifts given to us by God that we are to care for. And it's God's desire that, that our wives would be, as, as, as we find the wife described here in verse 3, that she would be bearing fruit Within her home, within your home. You see, it's God's desire that, that that our wives would blossom and thrive under our care. Behind every thriving wife, God desires for there to be a God fearing husband who is cultivating her, who is pruning her, who is growing her, protecting her, providing for her, leading her, and loving her. And the picture that results from that is this woman who bears much fruit. Picture of the picture of, of this fruit bearing is, is, is just a godly, mature woman. A Proverbs 31 woman who is living out her God-given role as a wife and a mother. Who is thriving uh, in, in the fear of the Lord herself. Proverbs 31 says that uh, this kind of woman was a woman who also feared the Lord. But understand what the blessing is. The blessing is not simply having a godly wife. You see, if you have a godly wife, men... But you haven't played a role in that, then you're not experiencing the blessing. You see, it's it's not just the fact of having a godly wife, but it's it's the, the blessing is the experience, the privilege, the honor that God has allowed you to be the means by which she will be cultivated and grown and 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 by by and, and, and bear much fruit. You see. Not only do you experience the blessing of a godly wife, but you become the blessing to her. And God wants to use you to, in, to invest in your wife, to cultivate her, to grow her up. You know, some of you are, are, are probably thinking, there's no way I can be that guy. I can't be the one to cultivate my wife. Um, you don't. You don't understand. My wife's walked with the Lord longer than I have. Uh, my wife knows the Bible better than I do. I mean, she's done every preset Bible study like five times. Um, or some of you might be thinking, you know what? My wife uh, is is just way too bitter and hurt by me that I I just can't be the guy that I can't be the one who will, who will have the role uh, in, in in impacting her. But let me let me just tell you something. And if I could if I could get a hundred dollars from every I would get $100, I'd probably get $100 from every woman, if I could, for saying this. Men, this is the reality. Is that your wives, by God's design, they want you to be the men who will cultivate them. They want you to be playing this role. They want to bear fruit. But they want it to be because you're making an investment in them and growing them up and blessing them and investing in them. And the psalmist says, it doesn't matter what you don't know or what you've done or any of that. The psalmist is just saying, look, just, just focus on one thing. Just be a man who fears the Lord. God isn't asking you to do anything you can't do. He's not saying go to seminary or go take all these Bible He's, just, he's not saying anything like that. He's telling you something that all of us can do. He's saying, man, just fear the Lord. Just stand in awe of God and grow in that awareness and awe of Him. And then you will be what your wife so longs for and needs. You see, the best gift that we can give our wives is, is, is us men who fear the Lord. That's the greatest gift we can give them. And as we do that, remember, it's, a, it's like a fountain. all of Everything else will flow out of that. We'll be undistracted in our love for our wives. We'll lead them spiritually in gentleness and with care as we care for that vine. We'll, we'll serve them and be an example of godliness to them. We'll become more and more selfless and sacrificial. We'll protect them from harm, from the world, from even from their own flesh. We'll nourish and cherish them will listen to them, will be pure towards them and devoted to them alone. God's saying there's only one way you can get there, and that's by fearing the Lord. You fear the Lord and you will be blessed this way. And you will experience the blessing of investing in your wife and seeing her grow in godliness. So he moves on to the second part of the home, and that's the children. And he moves from the, the, the picture of a vine to that of an olive tree. Look at the end of verse three says your children will be as olive shoots surrounding your table. Again, just like um, just like the vine, the olive tree was the most valued and useful tree in Israel. And they were in abundance when the the people came into the land. And, And from the olive tree, you got oil for anointing You got oil for medicine, for cooking, for fuel. You used the wood not only to burn, but for carpentry. In the Old Testament, a mature, cultivated olive tree represented a mature and growing and spiritually thriving believer. In fact, David in Psalm 52, 8 says, But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. He's not being arrogant. He's just saying, as I'm entrusting myself to the God. He is growing me into this olive tree. And and here's something fascinating about olive trees. When you, when you, um, when you grow an olive tree, you don't, you just don't take a seed and and plant it. What you do is you take an already cultivated and mature olive tree and you take these olive shoots or or small kind of starting starters and you, you graft them in in fact, Paul knew this language very well. In, in Romans 11:17, he talks about us Gentiles being these wild olive shoots that were grafted into a mature olive tree. You see, olive shoots on their own, they can't, they can't grow to maturity the way that they could if they were grafted into an already cultivated tree. And that's the picture that God is painting for us here in the psalm. He's saying, men, you, you just need to be men who fear the Lord, and you will be this mature olive tree. And your children will be surrounding your table, grafted into you. And, and, and they will be looking to you, feeding off of you for leadership and protection and provision and instruction and wisdom and discipline. And, and, and through you fearing the Lord and standing in awe of Him, you will grow them in their fear of the Lord and grow them into maturity. See, there's the blessing is that you and I, men, those of us who are fathers, we get the privilege of investing into the lives of our children, of, of attaching them to ourselves and pouring into them, growing them up. You know, there's just something unique about dads. I'm not, I'm not pulling a verse out. It's just, it's just kind of, you can just see it. You, know, you, you just look around and, and sons long to be like their dads we get the phrase, like father, like son, right? Some pictures of some like father, like son. <laughs> for better or for worse, right? And that's the reality is that when you think of about, about the blessing that you can be to your children, what you, what you give to them, it, you want to be the one who fears the Lord. That's the best thing that you could give them. Because that's what, that's what they will become as they feed off of you, as they're nourished by you. You know, the the, the psalmist isn't saying, graft them into the Sunday school teacher, or graft them into, you know, the the youth minister. He's saying, or graft them into the pastor. He's saying, Dad, you're the one. You get to be the one. And not only just young men, but even girls. Think about my daughter and and who I am as a man. As I walk in the fear of the Lord, and the, the, the fountain that comes out of that That's what my daughter's going to look to when she decides what kind of man she wants to marry. That's going to have an impact. So we have such a tremendous opportunity to invest in our children. The question is not, are your wife and children thriving? The question is, are you nurturing your wife and children so that because of your influence, they're thriving? Your wife is a thriving vine and your children are budding olive branches or olive shoots. You know, it's amazing when you look at Ephesians 5 and Ephesians 6, Ephesians 5 talking to men about their wives and Ephesians 6 talking about, uh, to men about children. It's amazing. He says, um, the, both of those words, to nourish and to bring up, are the same word at Trefo. It speaks of raising a plant, of growing something. We're called to nourish our wives, to grow her and to bring up, literally to grow our children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Well, the psalmist moves on, verse 4, Behold, indeed, in this way will the man be blessed who fears Yahweh. He's saying, look, this is the first time he uses the word blessing. And he says, in this way will the man be blessed who fears the Lord. The things I'm describing to you and I'm about to describe to you, this is the way that the man will be blessed. There's a third place that we're going to experience blessing as we fear the Lord, and that's in in our church. Men who fear the Lord will experience blessing in their community or in their church. And look at verse 5. There's some grammar kind of stuff here, but I want to just walk through it real quick. Some of your translations say, May Yahweh bless you from Zion, and may you, verse 5, and then may you, verse 6. But there's a cause and effect. The psalmist isn't kind of doubting whether God's going to bless you. He's saying, May the Lord bless you from Zion in order that you might see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life, and in order that you might see your children's children. He's confident that these things are going to happen if the men fear Him, fear the Lord. Fear the Lord. And what is he saying in verse 5? He's saying, The Lord bless you from Zion in order that you might see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. You see, Jerusalem was a rep- representation, a, a, a metonymy of, of Israel. And, and the picture that the, the, that the psalmist is painting is that of national or corporate blessing. He's saying, look, man, you, all, if you men together, not only as you fear the Lord in your homes, but as all of us fear the Lord in this community we will experience corporate blessing here. And, and the picture is of, of just this national corporate blessing. For us, there's an application, and that is for the church. God hasn't made promises to us as Americans, but he has said, in the church, I will bless you. And, and that is where we find men who fear the Lord. And that, that's our community. Um, it, you know, the it just evokes this, this picture of a band of brothers. Not only do we as individual men need to stand before our houses fearing God, cultivating our wives, growing our children, but we need to band together as brothers to together foster a corporate sense among our men that we're, we're together in this, that we've got each other's back, that the moment that I see you or you see me slipping in my awe and awareness of God, that you're going to turn me towards God and you're going to preach God to me, you're going to cause me to behold God, and that together... We're going to fear God together so that together we can experience corporate blessing here. And that's God's desire. You see, God wants to bring blessing on this church and He wants to do it through men who fear Him. Men who are servants, leaders, teachers, protectors, shepherds, and counselors. And He's not just looking to a few, the elders or paid staff. He's saying, all of you men need to be men who fear Me. And if you do that, I will bless this church, this community. You will experience blessing here. And all we have to do is just fear Him. That's all we have to do. There's a fourth and last place in which men who fear the Lord will experience blessing, and that's in their future. Look at verse 6. He says, "May May Yahweh bless you from Zion in order that you might see your children's children. Now, children's children in Hebrew means grandchildren. That's a Never mind. All right. <laughs> Sorry. Um, just like it does in English. But in some pe- some commentators say, oh, he's talking about a long life here. He's saying, you're going to live a long life. You're going to see your grandchildren. But I think he's speaking about something bigger. He's saying, no, no, no. You see, Israel had to fight for their existence every day. Every day that they lived, another day. That was a blessing from God. And for an Israelite to say, for the psalmist to say, Men of Israel, you're going to see your children's children if you fear me. That meant we're going to be around as a nation for another generation. In other words, what the psalmist is alluding to is this, this, this blessing to the next generation, this generational blessing, this future blessing. You see, as the Israel of tomorrow was, depe- the of tomorrow was dependent on the Israel of today, and so it is here, the church, the cornerstone of tomorrow depends on the men of today. You know, if you've been at Cornerstone for any length of time, you've, you've realized that we've been dealing with facility issues and we're, we're wondering where to go and what to do. And this is not an argument for owning property or not owning. I'm not trying to make that case. But just hear me out. I've come to realize, I, 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 had, a, I had thoughts originally or, or I used to have a lot of thoughts about, oh, we've got to... Get a building, because if we have a building, we'll have a presence here, and we'll be, we'll be giving a, a kind of a heritage and, and, and investing in the future, we'll have a vision for the next generation. And we can do that, and that God may very well want us to do that. That's not what I'm debating here. I'm just, I just want us to think about something, and that's this: Israel had a, a land, and they had a city, and they had a temple. They had real estate. But in a matter of a few generations, and different moments in their history, they were removed. And there was no hope for that next generation because they didn't fear Him. You see, the key to, to continued blessing in this church, in this community, isn't a building, it's people. And it's people who fear God. We may have a building, God may give us a building, He may not. That doesn't matter. The issue is that we need to know that if we want to have Cornerstone go on another generation and do well and thrive and benefit, we need... To to grow men, as as the men here gathered right now, present here today, we need to be creating a generation of men and women and children who love the Lord and who fear Him. And that's what will guarantee blessing in the future. And God is saying the way that that happens is through you men, and through you men now and today. You know it's fascinating. Deuteronomy six: You have the Lord, and He said, "You shall teach your children about Me. You shall teach them diligently." and talk to them along the way. It was up to the men to teach that next generation. And one of the saddest passages in Scripture is Judges 2.10. That generation that came into the land, they died, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. In just one generation, the men of that community had failed to teach their children to fear God. And as a result, there grew up a generation who didn't even know him. Or his works. Their concept of God was this tiny. God is saying, through us men, I'm, I'm going to bring blessing not only now, but later. As go the men, so go the families. And as go the families, so goes the community. And as goes the community of today, so goes the community of tomorrow. Men, God has given us a privileged position a role to play. And he's invested us with with this honor to do this, not only because he loves us, but because he loves those who we can become a blessing to. That's our wives and our children and our community. And he's saying, men, you need to be men who just do one thing, just fear the Lord. And out of that will grow everything else. And you will experience blessing and you will become a blessing in your home, to your families, and to God's family. As the ushers come forward, let's let's just bow our heads. Let's go to prayer. This time you can prepare to give to the Lord as He leads. But Let's give just with an awesome...